You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Hello and welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax. And I'm Micah Hahn. And this month we will be giving you your usual pop culture and politics education lesson. I think this episode is going to run away with us, Micah, because I just reversed the politics and pop culture order. You know what? This is a really, like, anything goes episode. So if you're new it here... It feels like it. Yeah, I apologize. We're recording this on a Friday night. I think we might be a little brain frazzled, but it's fine. We're going to bring it back um, to confirm this is a politics and pop culture podcast, and we drop into your earbuds monthly to give you a little lesson on the happening things. So, you know, I did mention it's monthly. Micah, how has your month been? Mm, September feels like it went by incredibly quickly. September did not happen. Like July and August happened forever and then September did not exist. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Um it it was weird not being in classes. That was a little odd. Um <sighs> but it was it was a good one. I hung out, attempted to write, and then successfully did write, which is all one can ask for when writing a thesis. So it was good. Exactly, exactly. I'm very happy to hear that, Micah. Um, My September was also quite relaxing. I feel like we didn't experience a true fall in New York until the very tail end of it. So I don't really have Mm -hmm. that many fall updates. My most exciting update is that the travel ban between the U.S. and Europe was finally lifted this mm-hmm. month or announced that it will be lifted this month, uh, which means I can go home for Christmas. So I am so, so excited. It's only like 11 weeks or something like that until I'm flying to Ireland for the first time in about two years because this month was actually my second Americaversary, which it marks two years of arriving in the U.S. and not being able to go home. But <laughs> it was a fun celebration. And made a little bit sweeter by the fact that I know I will soon be able to go home. So that was my little highlight of the month. In your relaxing, excessive writing time, did you have any time to do reading, Micah? Did you read anything in September? I did. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. um, got my hands on the world's, maybe just my corner of the world's most anticipated book of the year. Um, Beautiful World, Where Are You by Sally Rooney. My God, you didn't. I got the book a little bit early, like three days early. Felt very cool and then proceeded to spend an entire month reading it because I was busy. (laughs) So, you know, you win some, you lose some. Um, Even down. mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Um. I really, like, knew nothing about the book going in. I was like, it's Sally Rooney. I'm going to read it. How could I not? Um, and I would say, yeah, it's, it's a classic Sally Rooney book. It's about uh, people in their late 20s in Ireland. Um, it has mildly unlikable characters. <laughs> um, it has an unconventional writing style. So, like, in her other books, the dialogue is often integrated into the paragraphs instead of in the normal kind of um writing that we see um 
there was a couple things I really liked about it. One of them was that one of the characters um, is a famous author, and so you can very see clearly see Rooney kind of working through her own feelings about being um, a very famous novelist. Mm-hmm. And normal people like going crazy and the bargain of fame that you have with that of like people really wanting to know about your life. Um, the interviews leading up to the release of the book were really interesting about how she like is incredibly private and doesn't want people to know about her personal life and doesn't think people are owed that just because she's writing about other like her fictional characters personalized. Um, the other thing I really liked about it is it has, um, some really interesting back and forth between the two main characters about the world's big problems like climate change and then personal problems like having kids and falling in love. And I just thought it really captured how I think a lot of people in their mid to late twenties are feeling about the world currently. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really appreciated kind of seeing that on page. So overall, would recommend. Where would you put it in the Rooney rankings of her three books? Um, I think it wasn't, there was a minute there where I was kind of bored with it. Like not as much happens as a normal people for sure. And then like it fully got me back at the end. Like by the end I was crying, which is all you want. I've Um, heard there's like, a kind of controversial ending to this one. That's all I know about it. I don't know if the characters are male or female or what their names are. I just know there's a crazy ending that people are a little up in arms about. I liked the ending, I'll say. Okay. Okay. I won't spoil it. Um, But in my rankings, it would probably be Normal People, Beautiful World, and then Conversations with Friends. Oh, good. Okay. I wanted to confirm that you were not a conversations with friends over normal people person because a few people that I've spoken to are they're definitely in the minority but very much the same I'm definitely a normal people person and I think (laughs) if I had only read conversations with friends I wouldn't you know be so eager to read beautiful world where are you because it wasn't high up on one of my favorites normal Mm -hmm. people however that's the shit like that's that's it right yeah I'm glad it's still reigns supreme. I read one of the most amazing books I've ever read this month. I feel like mm-hmm. I say that semi-often on this podcast, but <laughs> this is another one that's definitely making the top five of books that I've read this year. And it is called Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. And oh, I am so, so glad I read this book. It is the one that has been recommended to me the most times. I cannot count mm-hmm. the amount of people who have forced me to read this would you say you're in the same boat Micah oh I am desperate to read it I just need to find the time yeah and find the copy I was like number 347 in the queue at my library but my roommate randomly came home with it one (laughs) afternoon and I knew I had to prioritize it then it felt like a sign but if you don't know about Crying in H Mart for some reason, you know, you don't have the same very pushy friends that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is Michelle's honor of Japanese breakfasts memoir centered around losing her mom. But it also encompasses growing up as one of the few Asian American kids in Eugene, Oregon, how her love of music developed. Because if you didn't know, Japanese breakfast is a very successful 
musical outlet of hers, and also the power of food in helping us process emotions and how we connect to others. For her, food was a huge, huge part in learning how to deal with the devastating loss of her mom. And it just made this book so much more, I want to say tactile. You really, really feel it. There's food you can taste in this book, but it's also just so beautiful and poignant and heartbreaking. And I cannot say enough good things about it. I really think everyone should should read this one. Maybe not if you're going through anything fragile in your life at the moment, <laughs> because it, it real, really, really pull at the heartstrings, but could not recommend it more. Absolutely adored Crying in H Mart. So, you know, really, really an MVP of this month. Um, moving on from reading, have you watched anything in September, Micah? I have. I um, had a huge con- accomplishment this month of okay. finally okay. finishing Breaking Bad. Oh, that is which, huge. Oh my God. Um, it's a show that we started watching after we got our first vaccine shot and we're very sick and sad mm-hmm. um, and get vaccinated. It's a one day sickness. Um, and... <laughs> Finally finished it months later because we were Mm -hmm. slow TV watchers. And I talked a little bit about this on Twitter, but I just have so many thoughts about culture, men, men who like Breaking Bad, um, the world as it was in the early 2000s. Um, I just... I think I when I say finally, I think it's a wonderful show, but I c- could not by the end of it stand Walter White, the main character, <laughs> and the fact that there is anyone on this world who thinks that he is in any way someone to be idolized scares me. It's um, like a Wolf of Wall Street thing where people yeah, came exactly. out of that it's, and was like, "I want to be that dude," and you're like, "Oh no, 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 you're that like, was no, not the you lesson. don't." That was not the lesson. Exactly. Um, so as a, like, beautiful breath of fresh air after going through the last season, which is just him at his worst, um, in 2019, they came out with a movie called El Camino, which is all about Jesse, and it's great. It, like, ties up his story nicely, um, and there's only a singular scene with Walter White in the whole movie, and it's Fantastic, right. Yeah. So would recommend, if you've watched Breaking Bad, and haven't seen the movie to watch the movie. I don't know if I would recommend going all the way through Breaking Bad unless you like really want to. <laughs> it, it does was, sound it was like good. A bit I just like it. the The ending there was a lot. Uh, yeah, I feel like a lot of shows around that time were having sketchy endings. Like, didn't that finish around the same time as Game of Thrones, and people had just been following it for years, and then it got ended a, a pretty brutal last season. I think Breaking Bad ended when Game of Thrones was starting. Like, it's a decently old show. Surely not. I don't believe that. I'm sorry. We're going to have to, like... Sorry, listeners. We have to do a little fact check here because I... I swear I remember being in, like, high school and people talking about the end of Breaking Bad. That's true. So Breaking Bad went from 2008 to 2013. It was only 2013. Okay, I would have yeah, said it Game was even like... Game of Thrones ended when we were still in college. 
Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. I think we've got a meet in the middle answer there. I would have guessed that Breaking Bad ended in like 2015 and I would have guessed that Mm. Game of Thrones ended around that time as well. But that's probably me being optimistic as someone who like doesn't watch Game of Thrones and had to live through seven years (laughs) about freaking dragons that I don't care about. Yeah. So Game of Thrones oh. started in 2011, so there's a two-year overlap. Okay, okay. But it didn't end until 2018, I think. Wow. 19? Something like oh that. my lord, okay. That's a long time to be dealing with that. Oh, gosh. Oh, oh um, yeah. I don't know if I want to talk because I did spend a lot of time this month watching Hallmark movies, uh, nice. which, you know, I don't know if that's a lot of people's cup of tea, but... My friend Eden came to visit over Labor Day weekend, and we love watching Hallmark movies together. So we really decided to focus in on the Jen Lilly back catalog. She is the star of one of our favorite fall Hallmark movies, uh, Harvest Love, which is about an overworked doctor mom who returns to her roots, a pear farm. And obviously, hilarity and love ensue. Mm. So we went through a few other ones. We watched A Dash of Love, which was actually a Valentine's movie. We were trying to stick to fall, but Hallmark really needs to expand that category a little bit. However, we did watch A Dash of Love, and it was actually, like, legit good. We sort of, (laughs) like, believed the chemistry between the actors. We were very into it. This one is about Jen Lilly as a chef who falls in love with another chef, and they open this like restaurant together and have to defeat an evil chef very fun hijinks i also watched eat play love which was described by my boyfriend as a decom for grown-ups he did catch a little bit of it unfortunately for him and it sees <laughs> jen lily as a vet volunteering at the dog shelter her high school boyfriend owns we noticed that in a lot of the hallmark movies it was people like falling back in love with their high school boyfriends which i don't know how yeah often that happens in real life like I don't know how often people get back with someone they dated 20 years ago maybe Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez in Spiral I don't mm-hmm. know but I can't see it happening um a lot but you know what Jen Lily back catalog highly recommend if you want some sugary goodness this month I am also going to recommend a movie I watched just last night called After We Fell it is the third movie in the after what I thought was a trilogy, but there's actually going to be a fourth one. But oh, no. they are movies based on the books that originated from a fanfic about Harry Styles. So very, <laughs> very funny stuff. They're like kind of like Fifty Shades of Grey, but in college sort of thing. Harry is like, or Harden in the movies is uh, pretty evil. He's a really bad dude. But in this one... It's not really worth describing the plot because it's a little all over the place, but it was an absolutely amazing movie going experience because almost every person there, and I really do feel sorry for the people who are not there for this reason, almost everyone there was there to laugh and yell things at the screen and clap. Like at the end, everyone was like just clapping and laughing. Um, Mm. It just defied any laws of logic and you can really tell it's a fan fiction like for instance the bit at the beginning where her dad reappears in her life as a hobo and then they kind of just like help him out for a little bit 
and then he walks out the front door and that's the end of the dad for a while. Like they can kind of only handle one plot at a time. So you can really see where this was like fan fiction serialized. Like, okay, the dad portion Mm -hmm. is done. Let's move on to the next thing. It also doesn't have like any concept of how things are done in real life. For example, Tessa, the main character, is a freshman in college who gets an internship at a publishing company that then like offers to move her to a different city and like sort out her college transfer and everything. Um, bizarre. She al- There's also a bit where she has to go on the pill and she goes to a doctor who hands her the pills and says, this will stop you from being pregnant for three months. And <laughs> I just had so much to say. Like, number one, a doctor is never going to say those words out loud because they cannot guarantee it. Number two, doctors don't give you the prescription. You don't sit in the doctor's like room and they hand you pills. Like that is not what happens. You have to go to a I mean, pharmacy. Yeah, I mean like silly silly stuff, Micah. If you want equivalent birth control for anyone interested, you could uh-huh. get the shot at a doctor's office and it would right. give you a 90 something percent chance of not getting pregnant. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very effective. Like, all of them is very effective. We love birth control here. Yeah, but no, but a doctor would never say that. A doctor would never absolutely guarantee you that, like, you will not get pregnant. They don't give you the pills there. You have to go to a pharmacy. He also gave her a naked pill packet. Like, it wasn't in a box. Like, it was just a <laughs> naked pill packet. No, no, no. And then he was like, <laughs> he said three months, but it was clearly a one-month sheet. Like, it was just the kind of thing that, it felt like a child who had never been to a doctor's had written it and was like, this is nice. probably what happens when you go there. So, you know what? I've been talking about this for about five minutes now. It's very, very fun. And I really hope you can all see it either in the movies. It's doing a very limited release in the US or when it comes out on streaming. I hope you enjoy. Um, I'm going <laughs> to just move along here because I feel like we've been in the after universe for a while. Micah, listening, what have you listened to? Um, my first listening is something a little unconventional for this section. It's, um, Yearbook by Seth Rogen, which is an mm. audiobook, but mm. truly a listening experience. Well, his voice um, is very iconic, right? His voice is iconic. Yeah. Um, so Yearbook is a collection of essays, um, that bring themselves as a memoir altogether. Mm-hmm. And it goes from his childhood in Vancouver in the early 90s. Um, to his Hollywood success. Um, and it's really, an, I would recommend listening to it as an audiobook um, because not only does he narrate it, but whenever there's like other people in his life, they come and do their own narration. So like his oh, dad stop. and his mom and his wife are in it. Oh, um, I love that. But also like Sasha Baron Cohen is in it. And just like any, any, he tries to get, um, as many of the actors as possible. There's like scenes with or a story about Nick Cage and Tom Cruise. They aren't. They for some reason didn't want to voice themselves. That you know. Um, but his impression me. is very good. So yeah, it's a, it's a very fun time. Um, a lot of stories about weed, as Seth Rogen is known for, but also a surprising amount of stories about shrooms. Um, <laughs> I thought you were yeah. going to say something completely unrelated to drug use, like, oh, it's a amazing <laughs> no, amount no, no, of stories no, no. about water skiing. But it, it's just shrooms. No, okay. No, I mean, no, that no, doesn't really surprise me still. Yeah, I know. Um, and a lot of stories about um, growing up Jewish in um, Vancouver and 
I think he also is very cognizant of like the real world issues attached to some of the things he's talking about. So Mm. in one of the stories about weed, he talks about the fact that like him as a white dude can tell these funny stories and that's like all that'll ever come from him smoking. But for racialized people, that isn't the case. Yeah. Um, And he talks about his experiences with anti-Semitism and his confrontations with Twitter about the fact that they should be banning the people who are harassing him, um, Mm. including the president of the United States at the time. So I think the book is incredibly funny, but it also, I think, shows his more reflective side, which is Mm. nice. So I would recommend listening to that. It's quite short, like seven hours. Oh, that's doable. Yeah, for an audiobook. Um, my other listening, which I'm pretty sure you've listened to as well because it's amazing, is um, – and we hinted at it at the end of last podcast. It's Star-Crossed by Casey Musgraves, which is just a beautiful follow-up to Golden Hour. So you love it? Yeah, I do. Okay, I don't I don't love it. I'm, I'm fine. Like, I listened mm-hmm. to it a couple of times and was like, okay – good yeah i don't think think, it's as good as golden hour no i mean what could be but i do think it's Mm -hmm. a better follow-up than like let's say solar powers to melodrama yeah (laughs) okay give me your uh star-crossed thoughts star-crossed is very clearly a divorce album as we know from like Mm -hmm. her and then the songs are very clear about it um i think it's very I was talking to someone about how it's like the mature version of Sour. Like we get oh, I love that. We got Sour at the beginning and then which is like uh-huh. I love Sour so much. This is the Olivia Rodrigo album because it like captures exactly what it feels like to be 16 and broken up with. It um, really does. It really really does. I think what this line all the time in I can't remember it's the song about I think it's um Traitor or right. no it isn't. Whichever one it is, where she goes and talks about how, like, I was the one who introduced you to Billy Joel, and you're like, dude, everyone knows who Billy Joel is, but that's such a deja vu. It's in deja vu. It's in deja vu, yeah. Like, that teenager feeling. There's so much of it. Yes, there's so much of, like, sour that, like, outrage over things that you definitely wouldn't be outraged over years Mm -hmm. later. Like, there's a whole, you know, the whole one where it's, I think it's actually in Trader, where, you know, it's like, you spoke to her two weeks later and stuff. And yeah, it's yeah. like, that really matters when you're 16. I think you kind of expect it when you're older, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it is very funny like that. So so I think Starcrossed is an interesting, um, like thinking about them in conversation, which they probably aren't, but like similar vibes from the same year of like a much more deep complicated understanding of heartbreak Mm. and like um I don't know why I've thought about this album so much I just like I have um but good I think good wife really caught me off guard like it's a little I think the whole album's a little corny but I think it like has these underlying themes that I find really interesting um and then also breadwinner is a bop and is fantastic so I totally agree. Breadwinner is great. And I kind of love the corniness of it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he wants your dinner. Like, it's just kind of silly, but I think it's really 
harking back to her when she was even more country. You know, it's those yeah. very straightforward lines that would definitely be in that. So I, I really like that nod. I've also been listening to Starcross this month, but a lot of Japanese breakfast, considering nice. my previous reading recommendation. I just got tickets today to see Japanese breakfast in Brooklyn in two weeks. So very, very excited about that. Um, if you want to get started on the JB train, that is not Jonas Brothers or Justin Bieber or anyone <laughs> of our age, uh, thoroughly recommend the album that came out this summer in Jubilee. And then on topic of live acts, I went to my first non-friends band this month. So I've I've seen my friends' band play a few times, but this month I saw Barty Strange at the Mercury Lounge and it felt like a real homecoming. I went to one of my favorite East Village bars beforehand with my friends and then ran into like a bunch of other people we knew there. So it was mm. Very good vibes all around. You know what? New York is back. Viva la New York. <laughs> Welcome to our politics corner. Um, this week in politics, there's a lot to choose from, but I thought it would be interesting to talk about the political side of a pop culture story and talk about conservatorships. <gasps> Micah, I'm so glad you're doing this because I feel like I haven't wanted to touch on the Britney story too much because it is everywhere, but mm -hmm. they've been focusing on Britney herself. So I'm really excited to hear about specifically the political side of conservatorships. I'm buckled in. I'm ready. Amazing. So as uh, Yaz alluded to, um, conservatorships are directly connected to the hashtag free britney movement which you've probably heard about unless you've been living under a rock for the last almost year um so britney as in britney spears of baby one more time and toxic fame has been um under a conservatorship for the past 13 years and then just here at the end of september it looks like she will be finally getting out of her conservatorship which is very exciting um, what is a conservatorship, you may ask? Basically, it's when an individual is deemed by a judge to be unable either physically or mentally to manage their finances and life. And then that judge appoints a conservator who fulfills those roles in a person's life. Um, and conservatorships differ a little bit. We're going to be focusing on the American context because that is where Britney Spears is. But similar things exist in other countries as well. Um, but in the U.S., conservatorships typically exist in one of two ways or both. So either they're financial, so your conservator makes um, money decisions for you and they can uh, control your money. Or they're of person, which means that the conservator is in control of life decisions. And this can be everything from where you live, whether you work, though most people under conservatorships don't work, refer back to unable to either physically or mentally manage your finances in life. So typically that means that you aren't able to labor. Um, and in many cases, you can't vote under a conservatorship, um, which is a lot. Um, so Britney Spears has been under both a purse, uh, conservatorship of both person and finance. Um, and 
in she hasn't really talked about it for many many years and then recently um, in the last year she has been talking about it more and in court testified that under the conservatorship she had been drugged against her will um, was not allowed to marry her long-term boyfriend and wasn't allowed to make her own reproductive decisions when she wanted to take out her IUD um, so as to get pregnant again. So these are all kind of like pretty huge and consequential decisions about her life. Um, yeah, she's been under this conservative. Yeah, severe. crazy they're big ones. <laughs> they're like kind of the things that make up a life, honestly. Right, right. Um, she's been under this conservatorship since October two thousand eight, which you might remember um, her kind of public breakdowns in two thousand seven with the shaving of her head, right, and attacking um, paparazzi, um, and. And she was involuntarily um, committed to a psychiatric ward two times in 2008. So since that, um, her father has had control of her money and her person, despite the fact that since like three months after the conservatorship was put in place, she has been working full time, making a huge amount of money. Um, Oh, yeah. And have you seen those charts on Instagram that like go around sometimes of like how much money or like record sales or whatever like artists have made over the years and like they'll always mm-hmm. shift like constantly and then like you know in 2010 like Adele will like show up and like smoke everyone but like Britney is up there for like all of it as like the highest selling female artist and I think we so associate her with this like pre-2007 like seven era of her huge hits but she isn't making bank since then. Like, still a huge oh, yeah. deal. Like, 2008, like, albums since then are, like, the circus era. Um, <gasps> All eyes on me in the center of the ring, just like a circus. What a banger. Like, what a banger. Um, her entire Las Vegas residency was while she was deemed uh, physically, and, or in this case, mentally unfit to maintain her own life Mm -hmm. um so luckily in this september a judge has deemed that her specifically her father shouldn't be in charge of her and be her conservator because of the toxic relationship that exists there and all legal oh yeah sorry about that (laughs) yeah um Everyone says that the, it looks like the judge will just reverse the conservatorship altogether as there doesn't seem to be enough evidence that she deserves to be under one. Um, so that's Brittany um, in, a, in a nutshell. The, the whole movement is another thing. There are many um, documentaries about her and the Free Brittany movement recently. So if you want to learn more, and I think we've talked about them on the show before. Um, you can go check out those. Yeah, but, we will try and link a few. It's definitely something I want to listen to more in October because this has been such a harrowing case to watch and mm-hmm. it feels a little bit brighter now knowing that she should be near the end of it, you know, and she's finally free. Yeah. So I hope they'll, you know, those podcasts um, and articles will do an extra little piece at the end about how justice finally prevailed. Mm-hmm. So 
aside from Britney Spears, um, she's brought a lot of attention to conservatorships, but they've existed um, mm-hmm. for a long time. And I think it's kind of undeniable that the history and the future of conservatives conservatorships are deeply political. Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever we talk about taking away someone's rights, I think it's given how monumental that decision is, it's really important to question the power involved in that decision and the abuses of power that can occur and the systems of power that benefit um, from taking away people's rights under this system. Conservatorship has existed in many forms throughout American history, um, but one nexus of power that they've existed in specifically is um, as a way to perpetuate sexism and racism. Specifically, um, there's a long history in the U.S. and Canada and other um, countries as well, obviously, but the American context um, is what we're looking at. Um, There's been a long history of controlling women's bodies and lives when they've been deemed mentally unfit. And what that mental unfitness looks like has changed throughout history. But generally, in the, in this period of like the 1920s, it was about categorizing women as being feeble-minded and mm-hmm. um, some like nervous, anxious. Hysterical? So, Isn't that one of their favorite hysterical. words? So hysteria is kind of earlier than this. It's a Victorian idea. Mm. Um, but also fits into this context, which happened, um, like a lot of the research about it is, um, based in Britain of deeming women in, like women have always been (laughs) in this period, especially women were always deemed incapable, but like excessively incapable to the point of needing to be, um, put into the state's care, um, in mental institutions. So that kind of is one of the building blocks of like how we see Britney being treated is this history of putting women away because we deem them to be mentally unfit. Um, in this, there's always been overrepresentation of women of color and we see um, the control over sanity as being a way of controlling women of color's bodies. But as we saw in Britney's case, I think a really important intersection to think about is how it relates to reproductive injustice. So Brittany um, wasn't able to decide whether or not to be pregnant and was forced to keep an IUD. But we have a long history of the state deciding through policies such as um, that are based in eugenics, whether or not to allow people to um, have children. And often this meant um, forcibly sterilizing women who were deemed as mentally unfit. Um, And often this meant black women specifically. In Mississippi, it was such a common practice in the 1930s that the procedure of like a hysterectomy became called a Mississippi appendectomy because it was just such a routine thing to do to black women. Oh, my Um, gosh. I know the if you want to read more about specifically the treatment of black women's reproductive um, lives, um, Killing the Black Body is a fantastic book about it. It's a bit more academic, but it goes through the kind of history of the racialization of black women's bodies and how when we think about reproductive justice, it looks very different for black women. So it's often about the right to have a child versus as 
kind of has been in the air often right now is the right to get an abortion. Mm. Um, so there's kind of the intersection of race and gender change, like what your reproductive rights look like and conservatorships and the denial of fitness to determine your own life intersect with that. So that's the intersection of I like Brittany's experience with the history of sexism and racism when it comes to um, conservatorship. Um, another intersection of power and abuse of power is that of colonialism. Mm. So conservatorship has been used, was used in the early 1900s. It was a type of conservatorship called status guardianship um, as a way to take away indigenous land or in the States, they would say Native American land. Um, This is where we come into differences in language. Uh, So status guardianship um, was granted to white people and it gave them authority over Native Americans for no other reason than Native American than them being Native American. Um, So So that doesn't fit into the previous, um, you know, in the case of Brittany, you were mentioning that modern conservatorships are for people who are like mentally or physically unfit to handle their own affairs. Um, It does in that the argument was being Native American inherently made you mentally unfit to oh whoa okay do your wow. own affairs. So as a background to this, um, this was really popular in Oklahoma um, and states in that area, as the U.S. Um, had given Native American peoples an allotment of land um, in their attempts to take them up like so they displaced a huge amount of native americans mm. in the trail of tears and um gave them like very small plots of land but that land was tied to them and them alone so if they sold it it was no longer native land mm. um and so status guardianship was a way um current scholars argue was a way of taking that land away as i'll explain but mm. i was while doing research for this i um was reading this document by Americans for Indian Opportunity, which was submitted to the U.S. Department of Education in 1993. And it has this very rosy understanding of the Guardian policy. So it Mm -hmm. says the Guardian policy was a program that was developed with the right moral intentions or justifications. The initial purpose was to provide government aid or guidance to Native Americans who needed help to organize or protect their personal finances. Um, which is just colonialist bullshit. Yeah, Basically, absolutely. the argument, um, Native American, the argument was that Native Americans were too dumb to understand Western legal and monetary systems. Um, and so the only way to help them was to create guardianship so a nice white person could help them figure out what to do with this land they had been given. And this land all of a sudden had become very valuable because they discovered oil and gas underneath it. Ooh, Okay. Yeah. So what would happen would be white settlers would come and petition for guardianship over Native Americans, um, often children who were more likely to be deemed incompetent, but also often women and sometimes just Native American men as well. And they would petition for guardianship. And because Native Americans apparently couldn't like understand monetary policy, were given um, access and control over the land and then either systematically drained 
the ward would be the term of all of their money so they could no longer afford to take care of their land or would just simply take the land from them and sell it to someone else. Um, There are documented cases of the judge who signed the uh, guardianship agreement then buying the land (gasps) from the guardian. Um, It's just like true just taking of land, stealing land from people under the system of guardianship. The specific, a lot of this happened in Oklahoma, and specifically it was the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickawa, Creek, and Seminole um, nations who had their land taken from them. And if you want to learn more about that process and the more like specific stories, um, the This Land podcast we talked about last month actually... Mm. The first season is about this process in part. It's oh, about wow. who owns Oklahoma land. Um, and this process of guardianship and stealing land went from the early 1900s to 1934 um, when with the Indian Recognition Act. So yeah, guardianship. Um, historically very powerful tool. Mm. I think the final way that people have been wanting us to think about conservatorship in like a post-free Britney future is in terms of ableism. Um, So Britney, it looks like, will be getting out of her conservatorship. But in reality, most people who are put under one will live under conservatorship for their entire lives. So we've seen a larger movement to kind of look deeper into this and the legal principles. Um, In the U.S., there's an estimated 1.5 million adults under conservatorship or guardianship. And the majority of those people are either elderly or um, have some sort of intellectual or developmental disability. And each state determines the guardianship or conservatorship rules. So it's really, one, unclear if that's why it's an estimated 1.5 million people. And all of those people live under slightly different regulations. So Mm. we all know a lot about California laws now because of the Britney situation, but there isn't a lot of clarity about laws in the other 49 states and I think the reason why people are why conservatorships are so contentious is because they're created out of a need um, the need to take care of someone who can't take care of themselves those people do exist in this world and those people should be cared for properly and with respect Um, and that's a really important goal but given the fact that People are losing a huge amount of rights when put under a conservatorship. There has to be a large amount of scrutiny involved, and currently there just isn't. Like, we don't know what's happening. Um, I think that intersects a lot with what we've seen at the pandemic of people not caring about old people that much. Like, we see a general kind of lack of care and empathy Mm. to people at the, like, end stages of their lives, and a conservatorship is often seen as something to do with the elderly. Um, so obviously we're seeing that changing a little bit. I think one thing that isn't thought about a lot in conservatorships is that people's abilities can change over time. Um, people can be empowered to make their own decisions as they, um, their situation changes. And the fact that it's really hard to reevaluate your status as Mm -hmm. a conservatee makes that, um, doesn't actually account for that. Mm. And I think a point I've seen come up um, a couple times is that 
it may the fact that you could just be put under conservatorship against your will essentially um and then never let out it may deter people from actually seeking the aid they need um, oh, i'm sure so, yeah because you would be scared to be put under a situation where you lose your rights Mm-hmm. So it's definitely something that needs to be reevaluated and needs more nuance. The mem- some members of Congress have put have introduced the Freedom and Right to Emancipate from Exploitation Act or the Free Act, and in an attempt to reform conservatorship. But a lot of people are, have a huge amount of criticism of it because it only allows a conservative to petition to replace their conservator with a state appointed one. Oh. Um, and then also like just brings in more social workers and more state oversight, right. but it doesn't get rid of the institution itself. Mm. And there are alternatives to conservatorship that allow for the person in question to make their own decisions. So there's supported decision making in which mm. at the end of the day, you are in charge of your own decision making, but you have people there to support you in doing that. Um and there's like other schemes as well. So yeah, that I think Britney Spears' case has shown us that the law allows these things to happen and they're perfectly legal. Um, and maybe they shouldn't be because um, in the past they've been used in like huge systematic forms of abuse, mm. like a colonial project, but today are still used to control individual people's lives. And if we had more data on that, I'm sure we would see patterns of certain minorities being treated worse than others and disproportionately being placed in these um, legal conservatorships. But I think there's hope. So that's good. I think people are thinking about it more. Right. Yeah. It's something that I didn't know a lot about. So I think Brittany's case and definitely this conversation has enlightened me a lot. So I really hope this does uh, shine a light on things and we see some change. Moving on to the fluffier but still important (laughs) portion of the show, pop culture. Over the past few months, I have been noticing that a certain phrase has been circulating on Instagram like so much that I think it's making a strong case for itself for being Merriam-Webster's word or I guess phrase of the year. Um, And that term is the photo dump. So this month, reviewing September, which I think was an especially big month for photo dumping, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about what it means, how it manifests, and what it says about the present and future of how we document and share our lives on social media. So to start us off, Micah, have you seen some photo dumping on Instagram lately? I have for sure. Yeah. So if you are unlike us and you have yet to see your first photo dump, the (laughs) phrase refers to a series of images that are uploaded, as I said, usually to Instagram in this carousel format. So rather than posting one image at a time, you have the option to upload Um, usually five plus for a photo dump. And then rather than these being a few choice shots from one moment, so like, I don't know, let's say you're at your birthday party and you've got like a group of, you know, friends and you post six photos and each one is like a little variation in pose or something like that. That's not a Um, Yasmin is doing the poses as she says that for all of our listeners. Voguing for everyone who cannot see me. 
Um, but this, this voguing, not a photo dump, not a photo dump. A photo dump would usually document a longer period of time. So it could be, you know, a whole day, like a wedding. It could be a week, like a vacation, or it could be a season, like summer. There was a lot of big summer dumps uh, this year. <laughs> but I think the thing that really sets them apart is that they focus on the everyday, the mundanity. So a photo dump might begin with a flower that someone's just spotted on the street. And then there could be like a funny ad on the subway. And then the third one could be a screenshot of them FaceTiming with their mom. And these photos are usually not perfectly framed or filtered. So, you know, you might see a little bit of visco editing since we all still love that on Instagram, but they haven't been taken in like a full-on planned out photo shoot. They're just very spur of the moment, here you go photos. And they're also very loosely arranged. So the photos in the dump don't tell a cohesive story. They're really just dumped there as their name suggests. And these kind of posts are really, really rising in popularity. So if you go into hashtag photo dump on Instagram, there's about 750,000 tagged posts at time of recording. There's obviously way, way more like in reality because cool kids would not use the hashtag photo dump. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also because photo dumps, while they are often captioned with that phrase, sometimes they're captioned with things like random or lately. And those posts would still have that like haphazard, here you go, take these kind of vibe. So it would still be classified as a photo dump. Um, so the carousel feature launched on Instagram in 2017. But these specific types of posts have really only become popular over the last year. And there are a few theories as to why. Um, one being that Instagram had got to a very unique stage that people got kind of sick of. And that's the excessive planning and filtering and framing and professionalizing of it. So it's really Mm -hmm. only been the past few years that we've seen a huge number of people quit their nine to fives and make an absolute killing as influencers. Obviously influencers have been around for a while, but you know, back in the time of, if anyone's like a style rookie fan, you know, the time of like fashion bloggers like Tavi Gevinson, they probably weren't as much selling you something as just showing their clothes. But now an influencer could sell 10 to 15 things a day on Instagram. And as it's been much discussed, they're the new celebrities and they are getting paid the big bucks to help advertise products for big brands. And then, yeah, getting that same kind of like fanatic following as celebrities have. So in turn, Instagram has become quite a professional place Um, with, you know, people like influencers doing those brand photo shoots. But because there's so many of them now, and that's become so prevalent, it has prompted even regular people to put a lot of thought and effort into their posts and everything have become quite polished. You know, it was really like an advert of your life. So to give you an example of that, I would consider a classic influencer with a classic influencer aesthetic to be my beloved CM Coving, uh, Caitlin Covington, also known as Christian Girl Fall or Autumn, who we have discussed on this podcast before. She takes very professional photos. She has, you know, sometimes a professional photographer doing them with like 
a real camera, not just her phone. And Mm -hmm. these are like edited on programs like Photoshop. And her photos are posed. You know, it's not pictures that someone's just snapping randomly. She is looking at the camera and smiling and doing a cute thing with her leg. And then they're all uploaded with a cohesive color palette. So even if you quickly flicked, you could definitely tell a photo was her because she's using the same colors and highlights and shadows all the time. And I think this has a lot of positives. It really cements Instagram as a creative outlet. You know, a lot of photographers and creatives have fun planning, directing, and executing photo shoots. You know, it's really like a photography exercise for them. But I also think that it's quite a good way to create boundaries. So I've spoken before about how I don't think it's a particularly good idea to rant online in the moment that you're feeling the emotion or cry on Instagram stories because I don't really believe that you owe people you don't know like you don't you don't owe them that you don't owe it's not your responsibility to show them what real life is actually like Mm -hmm. it's your responsibility to put yourself first and I think the best way to do that is process your emotions offline and later on you can probably add more insightful and helpful uh, comments to the discussion. And I think if you are viewing Instagram as like a professional platform and something that's um, very intentional, that's probably less likely to happen um, and cause you damage. Um, But it can cause you damage in a lot of other ways. So, you know, you might start viewing Instagram or viewing, sorry, your life as an Instagram opportunity rather than actually living it and then for your followers you might be giving them false expectations of what we should be as people um you know instagram is often touted as offering a look into the lives of real people but a lot of the time it's the same as like a glossy magazine spread there's so much editing and you know there's so many stories of people editing themselves on instagram to look different and then even getting surgeries in real life to meet those differences um so you know I think that's just not for influencers that is something a lot of us have done on Instagram for a very long time you know I know that I try and frame my photos nicely when I take them and I try and use like similar filters across my feed and I only pick the really cute or special stuff for my Instagram feed and the rest goes on stories But I'm wondering, Micah, how have you curated your Instagram feed in the past or maybe even the present? I I, when I started using Instagram, which Mm. you can still see if you go and look, um, I did colored squares, which was fun. (gasps) I remember Um, that. Yeah, a classic. Um, I did that for a long time. Could you explain what you mean by colored squares? Oh, yes. So, um, you know, an Instagram grid is like three by three. Mm-hmm. So I'd post um, nine pictures all in the same kind of like color palette. Mm. And so in the like every three pictures, it's arranged nicely so that you get like squares of like pink pictures or blue pictures. And that was kind of popular at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then didn't use Instagram for a while. And now I've been doing like mini photo dumps. So I'll mm-hmm. do like a season in three parts. And I like don't post Instagram that often. Um, and just like show little glimpses of like three photos from fall in X city, um, which has been fun. Okay. So you're like a little in the medium between 
curating and full-on photo dumping at the moment. Yes. Yeah. I I will probably agree um, the same. Um, so, okay. Yeah. Neither of us are doing, you know, extreme editing or feeling that extreme pressure anymore. But I th- just to kind of circle back, another big reason that this has really kicked off over the past year is, like many things in our lives, the pandemic. So Georgia Kelly, who is the strategic manager at Instagram UK, said, because of lockdown, many people weren't able to do very much. So they've developed an interest in people, places, and things around them. So, you know, people might not have photos from their vacation to post, so they're okay with posting photos of, like, a fence or their tea again. And I think a lot of people have also adopted that anything goes mentality that defined 2020. So 2020 was like a spanner in the works of everything. It was completely unpredictable. No one knew what was left or right or up or down. And I think a lot of people have just channeled that energy into their Instagram posts. But having said that, you know, it is a recent thing and it is largely influenced by where Instagram got to in like, let's say 2019 and the events of 2020. I do also think it's like a natural progression or just like a natural thing that happens online so you know it kind of harks back to myspace and facebook albums where people would like go on a night out and post 150 photos from that night like not like Mm -hmm. not look through them just like shove the camera into the laptop upload the photos and then put them on the internet um, it's also kind of like finstagrams which are private accounts where people post photos that are not as like perfect as they would show a general audience or might be a little bit risque. Um, I think photo dumps has maybe made people put that on their main account and maybe we won't see as many Finstagrams anymore. I think it was not particularly a thing of people our age and older, but a lot of people younger than us, I feel, had them. Um, Mm -hmm. I never did. I just Mm -hmm. didn't care that much, but understandable. I also think photo dumps are an evolution of shit posting, which in oh, yeah. internet culture is posting, as Wikipedia says, aggressively, ironically, and of trollishly poor quality posts. So shit posts are kind of like designed to be intentionally stupid and just like derail discussions and cause big reactions. So there was like the classic time around, I think like 2018, where people were just like making memes about Millie Bobby Brown being homophobic. She obviously wasn't. She was also like 14. And it was just like stupid, silly things to do on the internet. And I think there's an element of that energy in photo dumps. So yeah, a lot of people are doing them. And they have a lot of good reasons. As we talked before, it's nice to be free of the constraints of a perfect Instagram feed. It makes using the app light and playful again. As Georgia Kelly mentioned from Instagram UK, that uh, photo dumps help us appreciate the little things in life. And as I mentioned just a second ago, it's really like a natural continuation of life on the internet. Something like this, I feel, is bound to happen sooner or later on Instagram. However... This is my big butt on photo dumps. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been reading a few articles where people are doing like, you know, this whole down with the old, in with the new, goodbye, perfect, curated Instagram feed, long live the photo dump. Like, this is the best. We are being authentic. And it's almost like that, you know, that TikTok sound that's like, am I better than everyone? 
Mm-hmm, There's like an element of that about photo dumps. And I'm just not so sure. Um, number one, as has probably become clear due to the amount of times I've said it in this podcast, photo dump is the worst phrase ever. Like, oh, I yeah. hate it. Does it give you like a repulsive, like, does it just make you feel repulsed, Micah? I think reading it, fine. Saying it out loud, not good. No, dump is bad. Like, it doesn't just remind me of like breakups. It reminds me of literal poop. Like, I hate it. Mm. It just sounds like photos of poop. I don't like it at all. Um, a Mashable article proposed replacing this with image buffets, which I think is very pretentious, but I do prefer hearing it to photo dumps. Um, but on the topic of the word being awful, uh, point number two to them not being the Holy Grail is that by having a name attached to them, photo dumps or the practice of photo dumping becomes incredibly standardized. So Louis Hansen of GQ Australia um, wrote a fantastic intro to his article about photo dumping, which I will link in the show notes. He wrote, there it is, an Instagram post consisting of four to six carousel slides taking up space in my feed begging me to swipe. But first, let me guess. At least two of the slides will be screenshots of a viral tweet or circulating meme with a pop culture reference thrown in. Maybe it's a video of Gemma Collins screaming, I'm claustrophobic, Darren, or SpongeBob SquarePants' limp wrist to remind everyone you're in touch with the culture. At least one hot selfie is always included. We may be in lockdown, but the fans must be reminded you are still very, very sexy. And I think this is so true. There's so many that Mm. follow this formula. And I think if posts are still following the accepted norms, then we're really not being original and authentic on social media. Like we might be capturing more raw and unfiltered content, but we are still doing it in a way that is not completely transparent you know I think this time the aesthetic of Instagram is becoming more in line with Gen Z's aesthetic which is very like honest and unpolished and silly in a very dark world than the classic millennial aesthetic if you want to learn more about this you can listen to our episode the people versus oil and chuggy because that's a whole divide there Um, obviously referring to the chuggy portion of the episode people versus oil is not uh (laughs) One of them is not a euphemism for millennials. Um, but I think three, it's important to remember that the carousel is like an engagement tool and it's something that people use to game Instagram. So you probably notice that if someone posts a carousel on your feed, that post will come up like multiple times. So first with the first image, second with the second image and mm-hmm. so on. And that means that influencers have started co-opting these this trend so they can get more engagement. And by engagement, I mean, you know, more likes, more comments, more saves, that kind of thing. Because brands want to work with influencers who have large engaged followings. Um, so to give you like an extreme example of that, Kim Kardashian has posted photo dumps before. Hers have been like relatively consistent with the style, but there are still like a lot of hot pics in the photo dump. And I think it'll only be a matter of time before photo dumps just become more and more aspirational and we get back to the old ways of Instagram uh, content. So in conclusion- I have to go look at Kim Kardashian, sorry. 
Oh, um, are you looking at it now? These are very photo dumpy. Yeah, it's true. But still hot pics in it, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. But here she so, is in a Catwoman suit. They're still, like, professionally done pictures for the most part. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, although they're fun, I don't think they're the holy grail. I think that by literally choosing something from your camera roll, whatever the actual photo looks like, and uploading it to Instagram, you are making a choice. You are curating and you're selecting how you represent your life online. And yeah, again, like Kim Kardashian, I really see them becoming aspirational again because maybe that's the natural state of the online world. You know, maybe because we are literally choosing how we present ourselves often to strangers, it's silly to ever expect complete authenticity like maybe we should just expect that people are always going to perform a little and represent the best versions of themselves or maybe not even the best versions but like a version a version they want to you know because sometimes people present themselves as goofier sillier or you know more raw than they actually are so I think we should just like take things with a grain of salt and you know, the online world can really flatten people and make it difficult for people to ask for help if they've presented a certain image online or for others to even see when someone needs it. So, you know, even if your friend is not posting like photo dumps that are very, very authentic, if they're still doing very, very shiny posts, maybe just like check in on them, you know, like it's, it's a tough, it's a tough couple years for everyone. And like photo dumping or not is not a sign that you are doing great or fantastic. I don't think it should be a sign of anything. I just don't think we need to assign (laughs) morality to it. They're just posts. They're fine. You do you dump or not to dump. It's your choice. And there's no judgment. Alrighty then, that brings us to the end of another episode of Different Things Can Be Sad. Micah, what are you going to do in October before we catch up with everyone again? Ooh, um, October to me is the, I think to most people, the peak fall month. Um, fall. Mm-hmm. It's very good. Um, I will be celebrating Thanksgiving um, mm. here in Canada, mm-hmm. um, which will be great. Um, what date is that again? It's the first Monday of October, so... Oh, um, wow. the see. second Monday, sorry. Okay. Um, not this Monday, next Monday. Okay. Um, and I will be going to the Vancouver International Film Festival to watch <gasps> something like six movies in a week. It's going to be great. Um, <laughs> and yeah, enjoying fall. Hopefully venturing to a pumpkin patch. If I go, I will photo dump the experience for you. Yes, 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 yes. I have a pumpkin patch slash apple orchard on my list um, for the month as well. I'm also hoping to go to a cidery. You know, I'm really Mm. soaking up those fall vibes. Do a little walk through Central Park. I don't know if the leaves will be, you know, perfect by October, but a girl can dream. More in the next month. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know what a girl can dream. I'm going to, I'm going to manifest that. Um, and that is kind of the big plans for October. Oh, and I'm also going to go to New England for a few days. That'll be fun. That's, that's like the central hub of fall. So 
very excited for that. Um, if people want to look at your photo, don't Micah, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram um, for photos at, at Micah Han or on Twitter um, for me. Um, breaking bad thoughts. <laughs> breaking bad thoughts, um, updates on how my thesis is going, mm-hmm. um, angry tweets on Canadian election night, which was something that happened in September um, or other in Canadian news. Yeah. There we go. Um, you can find me at Yasmin Lomax on Instagram. Uh, you won't be getting full photo dumps from me. You also will not be getting them from our podcast Instagram, which is at DTCBS podcast. Um, that one, we have a very curated feed. We go a uh, picture and then tweet meme kind of thing. Picture, tweet meme, picture, tweet meme. So maybe we should post a photo dump in inspiration. We probably should. We probably should. Maybe I will just screenshot an entire like Emma Chamberlain photo dump and just post the whole thing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. You know what? She has a talent for it. And I just don't know if I could mm-hmm. nail that. Um, so oh, we shall see. You know what? Follow us on at DTCBS podcast to see if us millennials, zillennials can master the photo dump. Until next time. Bye. Bye.